with the, the kids having left for Children's Church, we do just want to make a note that next week is the switching week for that. So second graders, I guess, will be back in here. And, and my daughter, Melanie, who is now three, is reminding me almost daily she's telling us that she gets to be in Children's Church next week. So, so uh, parents, just take note of that. Next week will be uh, the week that we make that transition. There are, uh, there are a few people in the Bible who, who I, I would say are probably, are, would, are probably as well known for their physical appearance as much as they are for any of their actions in their life that are recorded in Scripture. For example, Goliath, right? He, he's, he's not just a, a Philistine soldier as we remember him. He, of course, is the 10-foot-tall giant of a Philistine soldier. Uh, John the Baptist, for example, he is not just the one who baptized many and baptized Jesus, but of course John is the one who wore camel's hair and a leather belt and of course ate, of course, ate um, locusts and honey. Such a tantalizing combination, right? We remember them for that. And then, and then there's Zacchaeus, Poor Zacchaeus, right? Uh, if I asked you to write down one word to describe Zacchaeus, I, I bet 90% or more of us would all choose the same word. Short. short. <laughs> I mean, oh, oh, to be the short guy in the Bible. Zacchaeus. Poor guy. But, but before we look down on Zacchaeus, pun fully intended, before we look down on Zacchaeus, I think we, we got to remember the entirety of his story because I think when we rightly remember his experience with Jesus, we probably would not say, poor Zacchaeus. I think we would probably say, how can I have that? I want that. How can I have that? Because if, if you remember, I mean, go back to, to Sunday school as a kid when we probably first heard this story. Zacchaeus, of course, being a short man, had to go to extreme lengths in order to catch a glimpse of Jesus when he came into town. He's too short to see over the crowd, probably too big to sit on anybody's shoulders. Might have been a little awkward at that point, so he did what he had to do. He climbed the tree. All right, he found a tree, he climbed it, and, and he tried to get that glimpse. And he got it. Eventually, Jesus came. He came into town, he came by that tree where Zacchaeus was, he saw Jesus, Jesus saw him, and Jesus told him, he didn't ask him, he told him that I'm coming to your house today. It's kind of interesting when you think about that. Zacchaeus didn't really get a chance to say yes or no. Jesus said, I'm coming. Zacchaeus, you better come down. And so, of course, the uh, uh, Bible says Zacchaeus climbed down joyfully and brought Jesus back to, to his house. Others were there in the crowd, and, and they were pretty upset about the whole thing. Zacchaeus was a tax collector, after all. I mean, Zacchaeus was a, a, a filthy, dishonest, cowardly, Roman-sympathizing, short tax collector. And here Jesus is going to his house, Man, they, 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 were not, they were not happy about that. They, they couldn't believe that Jesus would go have lunch at this guy's house. And I don't know what happened during 
that meal. I don't know. I don't know what kind of conversation took place there between Jesus and Zacchaeus, but I do know that it so impacted Zacchaeus that he stood up and he vowed to give half of his possessions to the poor, and he vowed to repay anyone that he had cheated fourfold. Uh, and my hunch is that the joy that Zacchaeus had earlier when, when he was bringing Jesus to his house, my hunch is that that joy carried over into this, what appears to be unforced statement that Zacchaeus made. It doesn't seem like there was pressure in any way for him to do this, but Jesus, uh, Zacchaeus stood up and made that statement about what he was going to do. I think Zacchaeus was so excited about his interaction with Jesus that, that he joyfully, not grudgingly, he joyfully made that statement. I'm going to give half of my possessions to the poor. I'm going to pay back fourfold anybody that I've cheated. So I don't think it's poor Zacchaeus. I, I think it's, how can I have that? I mean, how, how can I be so impacted and so moved and, and, and so transformed by Jesus that I can joyfully proclaim that I'm going to give half of my possessions away. How can I be there where Zacchaeus is? Well, I think this morning we're going to see what Paul has to say about this. We're going to see what he has to say to the believers in Corinth. If you remember the last couple weeks, this is, uh, this is the third of three weeks on giving as we go through chapter 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians. So we've made it. It's the last one. You might be as excited as I am. It's the last Sunday that we'll be talking about giving here in, in this series. But if you remember in the last, uh, the last two weeks, our focus those two weeks was on uh, giving generously and giving wisely. So Paul challenged the believers at the beginning of chapter 8 with two examples of generous giving. He, he challenged them with the example of the Macedonians, the Macedonian churches, these, these poor believers in these churches who, who gave generously. And then he also uh, used the other example that is, that is the foundation of all of our giving, the fact that Jesus was rich and yet he became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich. Those were the two examples that Paul used to encourage the church to give generously. And then he, t he talked about wisely as well. Paul explained uh, the safeguards that, that were in place regarding the collection that was being made for those believers in Jerusalem. Um, Paul was sending three trustworthy, proven men to administer collecting the gift and distributing the gift. So generously, wisely, today we, we, we see what Paul has to say about joy in the area of giving. Uh, the joy that Zacchaeus obviously had found in, in the story uh, about, uh, about him. So in the first five verses of chapter 9, that's where we'll be this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul a little bit summarizes what, what he's already said in, in chapter 8. So, so follow along with me here in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians 9. Paul writes and says, Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia, and, and that's the region of Corinth there, Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter. 
so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you've promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. What we see here again is that, is that Paul used the initial excitement of the Corinthians when, when they first heard about this collection being made, the church was excited and Paul used that excitement to encourage the Macedonians. And of course, the Macedonians then were encouraged and they gave generously. And so Paul then used their example to come back to the Corinthians and say, now, now carry out your excitement, bring to completion the excitement that you have. And then Paul affirms again in verse three that he's sending those three men that he described at the end of chapter eight. And, and, and really throughout the five verses, the whole point here is that Paul wants the church in Corinth to be ready. He wants them to be ready to give this gift. He's already bragged about the church to the Macedonians. Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't want to show up in Corinth later only to find out that, that no collection has been made. He, he said, you know, that'd be embarrassing for me. It'd be embarrassing for Paul. That'd be embarrassing for you guys. Paul doesn't want that. And again, he's, he's not trying to coerce the church into generous giving. He wants it to be a willing gift and a free gift. That's why he's, he's sending these three men on ahead of himself. You know, they'll show up early so that there'll be time for the church to, to finalize their giving, decide freely what they're going to give, have it ready without Paul kind of staring them down, right? I mean, I, wouldn't, wouldn't it have been awkward if during the offering this morning, I took the offering plate around to each one of you and looked you square in the eye, right? Say, Susan, here you go, right? You sure? Right? I mean, that would not be free. There wouldn't be freedom in that giving. I'd probably suck all the joy out of it, too, if I were to do that. Paul doesn't want that. He doesn't want that to happen with with the the church in Corinth. So he's sending these three uh, gentlemen on ahead of him, you know. He, but he wants them to be ready. He wants them to be ready for when he does come to town because he does say that he's coming and he will show up. He wants them to be ready. So then in, in verse 6, Paul, Paul reiterates what he wants the believers to be ready to do, and that is to, to give bountifully or, or to give generously. Now, he's already challenged them with that in chapter 8. The Macedonian example, the, the example of Jesus, he's already given them examples of generosity. Here he, he comes at the challenge from a little different angle. So look with me at verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So what Paul is doing is he's taking an agricultural truth and he's applying it to, to a spiritual truth, to a spiritual truth about giving. The, the agricultural truth is that you know, a farmer can, can only expect to receive a harvest that is in proportion with the seed that they have sown. If a farmer only sows a quarter of his field, he'd have no logical reason to expect plants to grow in the whole field, right? It's proportional. However much you sow, you can expect to reap. The more seeds he sows, the more harvest he would expect. The less seeds he sows, the less harvest he ought to expect. 
that, that principle <laughs> kind of reminds me uh, back, to, back to my own Bible quizzing days. I know our church here, our quiz team's having their informational meeting today. It reminds me back to the prayers that, that we used to pray uh, back at Salem Church growing up. Before a quiz off, we, we would typically kind of pray something like this. It wasn't uncommon to hear us say, to say, God, help me remember everything that I have studied and a little bit of what I didn't. Right, a little bit of what I didn't, and you know, we're basically, you know, and that was kind of a half, half-hearted, you know, you know, the light-natured prayer there. But you know, in a, in essence, what we're asking God to do is is to to kind of break the principle that that He has set up in the created order. We asked God to give us a harvest where we had not sown. Now, I can say with confidence that the second part of our prayers went unanswered. <laughs> I think God did help us remember what we studied, but probably not what we didn't study. And, and Paul takes this principle, this, this correlation between sowing and reaping, and he applies it not just to farming, but, but to giving as well. If we give sparingly, we'll reap sparingly. If we give bountifully, then we'll reap bountifully. And, and, and you'll maybe notice in the rest of the passage as we go through this, Paul, Paul's going to make some wonderful statements regarding, regarding God's promises and, and the outcomes of giving that lead to joy. However, nowhere does Paul specify whether the outcomes in the givings, the outcomes and the blessings are spiritual or physical. He, he doesn't specify that anywhere. And I, and I think he's intentional in that. I think he does that on purpose. I, I think we are to rightly understand that both physical and spiritual benefits or losses are in view, as, as Paul writes here. I, I think by not specifying which are in view, Paul wants us to have both in view. When we, when we sow sparingly, we reap sparingly materially and spiritually. When we sow bountifully, we will reap bountifully, materially and spiritually. Now, now before our minds take off with that and we start conjuring up some get-rich-quick schemes, we've got to read all of what Paul says here. He, he goes on to say much more, so, so stay with me on that. Um, but, but one other point on, on this verse specifically about sowing bountifully the more I was, was dwelling on the agricultural side of that, uh, man, the more, the more I came to the understanding that, that sowing bountifully is a sacrificial act. It's very much a sacrificial act to sow bountifully. And you think about it in Paul's day. The sacrifice came in that, that when the farmer would go sow the, sow the seed, he was sowing food. Right now, that seed hadn't been, you know, made into flour or anything like that yet. But that seed is what they would have used to make food for themselves. So he was taking food and and scattering it on the ground, throwing it out, planting it. And once you do that, you can't really take it back and and make it into food anymore. So there was sacrifice there. There was trust involved there to go into the storehouse, pull some out, and and just throw it out onto the ground. And, and, and even in our day, you know, we don't quite maybe equate it that way, but even in our day, there is, there is a cost involved in, in planting a field. You know, when you think about a cornfield, 
called Jim to, to get the numbers to make sure we were <laughs> I was on the right page here. Just in uh, seed costs alone, it's about $125 to plant an acre of corn. Just in seed costs, so no equipment or labor or anything like that, just seed. And if you multiply that out over, over a typical 80-acre field, it's $10,000. So every time a farmer plants a cornfield, they are basically burying $10,000 in the dirt. You ever done that before? I haven't done that before. Burying $10,000 in the dirt. Now, a person who's worried about, about the cost of sowing bountifully could cut back. You could say, I'm only going to bury $5,000 in the dirt, or I'm only going to bury $1,000 in the dirt. But again, that what Paul brings to our attention here, that, that affects the reaping. Sowing, sowing uh, sparingly will lead to reaping sparingly. So to give bountifully in order to reap bountifully, there's sacrifice involved there. And I, I don't think it matters about the dollar amount so much, you know, whatever that might come out to, but bountiful sowing comes at a cost, comes at a sacrifice, is, is what I think we take from that. Again, that's true in farming. Paul leads us to understand that that's true in giving as well. He wants the believers in Corinth to be ready to give bountifully to know that there's sacrifice that comes with that and to be ready to do it. But it's not just bountifully. He wants them to give joyfully as well. And, and we see that in verse 7. Paul says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I think what, what God loves more than the gift we give is the attitude with which we give it. You see that here, you see that other places in scripture as well. That truth goes all the way back to the very beginning of the nation of Israel, where Moses was uh, recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 15 that, that the people should care for the poor in their land freely and, and not grudgingly. So even when the nation of Israel was, was being birthed, this principle was being talked about that that ought to be a, a, a free, generous act, caring for the poor. Sounds good, right? Sounds good to, to give cheerfully, to give joyfully, but, but how do we practically do that? How do we get to that place where there is joy in our bountiful, sacrificial giving? I mean, as I said earlier, giving bountifully requires sacrifice. It costs something to sow bountifully. So, so where does the joy come from? How do we, how do we find that joy? How, how can we have what Zacchaeus had? And I think what, what Paul goes on to show here is that the joy comes from the outcomes. The joy in in bountiful sowing, the, the joy in generous giving comes from the outcomes. The joy comes as the promises of God in this area are fulfilled in our lives. I, I don't think joy is going to come when we focus on what we don't have anymore, right? What we buried in the ground, what we gave away. The joy doesn't come when we focus on that. The joy comes when we focus on what we do have, on what God is doing as a result of that sowing, that giving. And, and Paul lists a number of these promises uh, in verses 8 through 14. So, so look with me, uh, the first one in verse 8. He says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, 
so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. I think there's an incredible sequence of events that Paul lays out there. He starts by saying that God makes all grace abound to us. And, and, and from the get-go in these two chapters, Paul has talked about giving. He's referred to it as an act of grace, an act of God's grace in our lives. Our giving always starts with God's grace poured out upon us both in terms of our desire to give and our ability to give. It's all God's grace poured on us. Our, our, our giving is never meant to release God's grace in our lives. You'll hear people teach that. That's one of the prosperity gospel proclamations. Our giving releases God's grace. Paul says, no, no, it's God's grace that releases our giving in our lives. His grace comes first. God's grace abounds in his people and gives them all sufficiency in all things at all times. Our, 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 our giving will never exhaust God's sufficient supply in our lives is what Paul's saying there. Now, if I'm honest, I'm not always satisfied with sufficient, right? I mean, there's, there's times where I would prefer excess. I'd prefer extravagant. Paul says what God has promised is sufficiency. God will give us what is sufficient in this life. Um, came across a quote by C.K. Barrett that I thought was great. He put it this way, if men are willing to give, God will always make it possible for them to give. The, the grace of God will abound. The, the sufficiency will be there so that at the end of the verse, at the end of verse eight, you may abound in every good work. If men desire to give, God will make it possible for them to give. God's grace abounding, his sufficient supply ought to lead to that, to that abounding good works. That, that sufficient supply is not meant to, to increase our, you know, our ease, our comfort, our, 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 possession count. You know, that sufficient supply is meant to lead to every good work, as Paul writes it here. I think there's, there's just a wonderful process involved in giving, where, where God's grace flows to us. He, he sufficiently supplies our needs, and then, and then we abound in good works. It, it, it overflows from us. It's a process that I would say leads to joy, there's joy when we, when we see God working in that way, when we personally experience God working in that way. And, you know, I, I, I want to share some of my experience this morning, and, and not, not in a prideful way at all. I really don't, don't want to do that. But I do want to give glory to God, which, which we'll even get to here um, shortly by personally affirming what Paul has written here, that there is joy that comes from participating in that process. I, I can tell you from experience that, that it is, it's a joy there. There, there, have been, there have been two specific incidences in, in Megan and I's marriage where, where we, we sensed God leading us to be sacrificially generous to someone. Um, two times where, where we would have never done what we did without God's clear leading. And, and, and there was joy in that. There was joy in, 
in, in following God's leading in that way. There was, there was joy in seeing God sufficiently supply us in order to be able to carry that out. And it, it, it's just one of the outcomes of, of joy that Paul talks about, this process here in verse 8. We got four more to get to, so so we continue on verses nine and ten. Uh, another outcome of of uh, of giving is is evident righteousness. Verse nine, as it is written, he has distributed freely; he has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. In verse 9 there, Paul's, Paul's quoting from, from Psalm uh, 112 that we read earlier, and that psalm speaks about the righteous man, speaks about how God works in his life, and, and Paul focuses on verse 9 of that psalm to highlight how the man's giving to the poor reveals a righteousness that will endure forever. And, and again, it's, it's not his giving that creates the righteousness within him. It's not his giving that secures righteousness from God. It's, it's his giving that reveals God's righteousness in him. And we see that in, in Psalm 112. And, and Paul again states in verse 10, God supplies the seed that is needed for bountiful sowing. He brings the, increase, the increased harvest as the result of righteousness. And, and there's joy. Again, there's joy in that when we recognize God's righteousness flowing through us. Again, we haven't earned it. We, we haven't secured it on our own. It's, it's he's made us righteous and we're, we're blessed and, and it's joyful to be able to see that at work in us and through us. See God leading us to do things that we never would have done apart from his work within us. Joy also comes from, from giving because it leads to thanksgiving. We see thanksgiving uh, given to God as needs are met. In verse 11, uh, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. And I think, you know, I think, you know, you go back to the process in verse 8 where God shows himself sufficient and it, and it leads to good works. I, I think what's cool is that, that, that both parties involved in the giving and the receiving can see God working in different parts of that process. So, so as God sufficiently supplies somebody's needs and then they give, and if, if they give to meet a need in my life, I'm recognizing that God is sufficiently supplying me through their giving, and then that can lead me to give to someone else, and then now God's sufficient supply can be, and it's just, you know, God's at work in all parts of the process, and even the same situation, people are participating in different parts of the process, and it all leads to thanksgiving given to God. One person thanks God for the, the opportunity to be generous. Another person thanks God for sufficiently supplying the needs in their lives. 
And even, even when we think about the holiday of Thanksgiving here in America, I think even that is a reminder of this principle. When you, when you go back, you know, as we learned in history class, the, the Native Americans had an abundance of knowledge regarding how to survive in this land. They generously shared that knowledge with the early pilgrims who were lacking in that knowledge of how to survive in this land. And then both parties came together to celebrate, to give thanks to God for how he had worked through this giving and receiving. And, and I came across a quote by, uh, by a pilgrim, Edward Winslow, that described it this way. He said, although it be not always so plentiful as it was at this time with us, yet by the goodness of God, we are so far from want that we often wish you partakers of our plenty. So that, that specific pilgrim recognized that God deserved thanks for what had taken place, that they were lacking in their knowledge, the Native Americans helped them in that, and it led to this bountiful harvest that then was enjoyed, celebrated together, and, and God was given thanks as needs were met. Another, another outcome of giving that leads to joy is, is that glory is given to God. So not just thanksgiving given to God, but glory to God as well. Verse 13, by their approval of this service, and he's talking about the Jerusalem believers here, the ones, the recipients of the giving, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. So more than, more than simply pointing out what God has done, generous giving points out who God is. God is glorified because of who he is. You know, Paul states that the believers in Jerusalem who, who received this generous gift would glorify the God of the gospel whose sacrificial love so filled those believers in Corinth that they gave generously. They would glorify God for that. Their, their, their very act of giving was evidence of God's character. Uh, I mean, we remember the, the, the loving sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross is the foundation of a believer's giving, and, and it's God's love that fills the believer and leads them into those acts of giving. It, it, it brings glory to God. I, I think we'll find that, that our generosity in giving will stand out a bit in our world. Our, and as it does that, our generosity can, can provide opportunities for us to explain why we were generous to begin with, what, what led us to, to respond in that way. And then our generosity, because that leads to a chance to talk about the gospel, right? Well, why, why are you so generous? Well, let me tell you about Jesus, who was generous to me. And then it's not just the opportunity to share, but our generosity uh, shows the reality of the gospel of Jesus. It doesn't just give us a chance to tell that story that we sang about earlier. It proves the story. Because man, it's not just Jesus that gave of himself in that way, but he's so filling his people that they are giving of themselves generously. And he could say, man, maybe I, maybe I don't think that the Bible is true, and I don't believe that it's accurate, 
but I can't argue with what I see in your life. I can't argue with the generosity that, that you say comes from that story. And so it, it all brings glory to God as we do that. And again, there's joy that comes with that, right? When we can look back on our day and say, man, God, there, there was glory given to you there, and I got to be a part of that. That's joyful, isn't it? I mean, wouldn't that, wouldn't that lead us to, to respond with joy? And then finally, uh, generous giving leads to deepened relationships with other people. Paul talks about that in verse 14. Again, talking about Jerusalem believers, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. So when the, when the believers in Jerusalem received this gift that they're going to long for and pray for their brothers and sisters in Corinth who've been so generous to them. Uh, and, and, and we can't forget the context of this letter. Paul is talking about Jewish believers in Jerusalem longing for and giving thanks for and praying for Gentile believers in Corinth. And, and that's a big deal, especially in this context. It had only been about five years since there was a big council convened in Jerusalem to figure out what to do with this problem of Gentiles becoming Christians. So I don't think we should assume that, that the relationships have been totally smoothed over just five years later. And so the fact that Paul says there's going to be Jewish believers giving thanks for and praying for Gentile believers across the known world that they've never met is incredible. It's truly powerful. Paul knew that as the, the, as the church in Corinth participated in this generous giving, that, that the relationship with the Jerusalem believers would grow and that it would deepen. You know, I think for us, too, as we generously give to, to those around us, as we meet needs around us, we'll find ourselves longing for and praying for one another as a result. We'll find our relationships deepening with one another as we do that. And, 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 and we know from experience, right, deepened relationships are a cause for joy. We know that. We, we can look back on our life and, and, and see that. So if we, if we go back to that opening question, how can we have the joy that Zacchaeus had? How, how can we joyfully stand up and say, I'm going to give half of my possessions to the poor? How, how can we have that kind of joy in giving? As Paul described it to the church in Corinth, I think it's not about creating that joy. It's, 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 it's not about forcing ourselves to be joyful in order to experience joy and giving. I, I don't think it would ever work that way, probably, to force ourselves to be joyful. We're simply called, Paul reminds us, to, to give sacrificially and generously. And then as we do that, the outcomes are these outcomes of joy that Paul talks about. The deepened relationships, glory to God, thanksgiving to God. We see righteousness, we see needs being met. It's, it's, it's all going to lead to the joy that we desire. And then I think we come to verse 15, where, where Paul gives the capstone of this entire two-chapter section. He says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And, and a lot of scholars think Paul made up that word, inexpressible, in the Greek. 
That, that word is not found anywhere else in Greek literature. It's like Paul is saying that, that the gift of God in our lives is so indescribable that I've got to make up a whole new word that doesn't describe anything except for the indescribable gift that God has given to us. And, and the gift is twofold. I mean, the gift, of course, is seen in, in the cross. Of course, the gift is Jesus giving of himself, becoming poor so that we might be rich in him. But the gift is also then our participation in that giving. The gift is, is God's grace flowing to us and through us as we, as we generously and wisely and joyfully give as Jesus has given himself to us. So we can have what Zacchaeus had. We can have that joy in giving in our lives. So I think the challenge is to be, be bountiful sowers, that we might reap the bountiful joy which God has, has promised to give us, that Paul highlighted for us here this morning. Would you stand with me? Let's, let's close in prayer. Give thanks to God for how he supplies and also ask him to lead us into this more and more. Heavenly Father, we, again, we go back to the foundation of all of this. You giving of yourself on the cross. That is example 1A of generous giving. And, and we are so grateful for that. It, it, it has transformed our lives. And God, as we, as we take in the, the totality of these two chapters, would, would you help us to, to see giving as you see giving? And, and financially, but in so many other areas of our lives as well. May we not focus on what we don't have as a result of our giving. May, may you help us to focus on, on the promises that you've given to us that you will supply what we need, that you will be given thanks, that you will be given glory. God, we, we, I think every one of us wants to be a, a, a bountiful sower. So would you, would you lead us in that, God? Help us to take those steps, the, step into the, the sacrifice involved in that. God, may our trust in you grow as we do that and as we see you work in different ways. God, uh, uh, remove from our, our, our minds, our desires, any, any, any desire to increase our own financial standing through any of this. God, it's not what it's about. It's about being good stewards. It's about proclaiming your love and giving glory to you, but, but also, <clears throat> also loving one another. God, we give you thanks. We give you praise this morning. God, would you be working in our hearts? Would you be working in our minds? Not just as we, as we dwell upon your words in Scripture, but as we, as we move now into singing praises of you once again. It's in your bountiful name that we pray. Amen.